the place where lovers go to cry their troubles away. And they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. Going down to Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. Going down to Lonesome Town, to cry my troubles away. In the land of broken dreams, the streets are paved with regrets. Maybe now in Lonesome Town, I can learn to forget. Billy ran around with a rare old crew he knew and asked of Tottenham glue. Yeah. Billy ran around with a rare old crew he knew and asked of Tottenham glue. Billy saw a copper and he hit him in that knee. Hit him from six foot to five foot two. Hit him right square on the do re me. That copper won't be wearing any family. Hey, Billy son, where are you now? Don't you know that we need you now? Well, they're all ta ta, the old pa pa. Where are Billy Bones rested now? Billy went away with a peacekeeping force because he loved a bloody good fight, of course. Ran away in a big khaki band to the banks of the Lily Jordan. Billy saw the Arabs and he had them on the run, so he had them in the range of a submachine gun. Had the Israelis in his sights with a rat ta ta, and they ran like shites. Hey, Billy son, where are you now? Don't you know that we need you now? Rat ta ta, the old ta ta, where are Billy Bones rested now? One night, Billy had a rare old time, laughing and singing on the Lebanon line. Came into camp, not looking too pretty, never even got to see the holy city. Now Billy's out there in the desert sun, and his mother cries when the morning comes. And there's mothers crying all over this world for the poor little darling boys and girls. Plugged on a Tuesday, wrapped on a sick on a Friday, buried on a Sunday. I'm not going to wear blue, uh, green, even though it is my favorite color and I have plenty of green outfits. Not going to not gonna kowtow to the Fenians. No, thank you. Fucking potato munchers came over to America and, and immediately said, hey, uh, if you give us guns, we will be your thuggish enforcers of capitalism. Way to go. They came over here and they're like, hey, as long as we're not at the bottom of the racial hierarchy, we will uh, kill anybody that you ask us to. And you know what? Rational decision in the context. Nothing you can blame them for. Everybody does what the incentives drive them to do. You can judge people individually, although in the end, we only ever judge ourselves. But as an aggregate, you can never judge anyone because people are moving in the through the chute as it's been designed. If things change, if there's eruptions of resistance, they emerge uh, out of disruption. Uh, you know, moments, specific moments, 
of disruption, of of overflow, overflow of uh, rage, overflow of fear, and new forms of resistance emerge out of that. When things are going uh, as planned, things kind of just have a brutal accumulatory logic. And what is accumulated is human activity that is then turned into culture and, and then directed backward towards us. So yeah, can't blame the Irish too much, but certainly no reason to die a fucking river for them. Good Lord, get over it. But, and that is why uh, anybody who wants to get rid of Columbus Day, I'm sorry, you got to think of something better to trade the cha the uh, trade to the Italians. Sorry. Because they are another one of those perilous white groups that came in late and still have the memory, the, 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 the social memory of not quite being American. Of course, it's a joke now because it's been literally generations since then. But that feeling of not being part of America, it's deeply um, enticing. Everybody wants a piece of that, really, including people who think they love America. They want to feel in some way divorced uh, from culpability with the broader American project. Because even a reactionary has parts of America's project that they're horrified by one way or the other. And being a subject to America rather than a embodiment of America uh, allows for that. So everybody wants that. Everybody ha ha uh, seeks that, regardless of where they are politically. And that's why the concept of identity politics uh, is so absurdly used and used in a way that's meant to uh, abolish understanding rather than increase it because all politics is identity politics. That's what we have instead of uh, class politics. There's a material base to it and there is a client relationship between identity groups where there's a, an understanding explicit or implicit that your group getting in there will be represented in part by government uh, large yes flowing in one direction, one way or the other. That's it. The only thing that disrupts that is class politics that cuts through identity because it's separate. It is, it is not one identity among other. It is the identity that structures all the other ones. Lens is the class. What we do with our day, our, if our labor is exploited taken from us if we live off of the uh, labor of others, the experience of living as a member of a class is the emotional fulcrum catalyst for all of our understandings of every other element of our identity. And as such, it can't be represented among them culturally and isn't. It has to emerge from struggle. And we built in this country briefly cultural organs of class struggle, but they have all been absorbed into now the post-class American political uh, and media economy. Uh, hey, Germans don't need a fucking parade. They got an entire month. They got the month of October. 
and they got the fest of October, which is usually in September, because you're getting excited about October showing up. Call that whole month. But the reason the Germans don't have a holiday isn't just that the German Germany did World War One and Two, and that made German Americans very quick to kind of get rid of their little special part of separation because it's connected too much to the the specific German project, as unlike you know Ireland and Italy. <laughs> I mean, yes, Italy fought World War Two, but you know uh, that wasn't even really the high point of anti-German sentiment in America. That was World War One, when Italy was uh, an ally. A lot of it is that the Germans got the land. The Germans showed up in time to get the land. The big German emigrations to the United States happened in the mid. 19th century. The 48 uh, Rebellion is a big pusher, but even a little before that and after that. Uh, and it started, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, it started in eastern Pennsylvania in the colonial era. So that means that you get this middle strata of, of uh, peasants with enough money to be able to come to America, but not enough security in their uh, employment to stay in Germany comfortably, they come here and they're able to grab some of that free real estate and they fill in the Midwest all through the 19th century, creating these nodes that bring in people, which is always how it always works. Early adapters create uh, family networks that pull people, like with capillary action across the ocean, because you know somebody there, you know a cousin or something. You would, it's much more difficult to go cold turkey to another country. So people go where their their people are. So the Midwest fills up with these crowds who get the land, and then they get to be beneficiaries of the American uh, project. Uh, but of course, there are those who bring their socialism with them and who try to assert on the centrality of socialism to German identity, and they do have outsized influence in, in politics, we have the, the sewer socialists uh, in Milwaukee who only came to power because of the German immigrant population there. Uh, but again, that's the ones who are in the cities. Well, people, if you have if the, the Germans who filled in the land, they become the backbone of the post-war Republican Party, post-Civil War Republican Party, the smallholder class. The when the when the Irish show up. They show up at the same time as the Germans, but the Irish who show up are the brokest boys in the continent because they're not making, they're not, because there was a blight across all of Europe in the early 50s. That's why it's called the hungry 50, uh, early 1840s. That's why it was called the hungry 40s. And it's why you had the 48 rebe rebellions there because things were bad. Harvests were destroyed. The potato blight affected potato crops all across Europe. And potatoes had been brought in across uh, through the Atlantic, the Atlantic Exchange, the American Exchange, brought to Europe to fill in the calories of uh, of farmers so that they could grow more cash crops. So everybody was having a bad time, but in in Germany, you know, it was not the fucking Holocaust of devastation that it was in Ireland. The difference: Ireland was a fucking colonial holding of England. They treated it the way they treated India. That means the Americans who come, or the Germans who come during this period, they have a 
they had a fucking nickel to rub together. And they could set themselves up in America. The Irish got nothing. <laughs> the Irish are fleeing literally death or being enslaved on a road gang. Or being uh, get, stealing Trevelyan's corn and being transported to Australia. So the ones who came to America just huddled next to the shore. And they took the first job that was offered to them, which was from the state in one form or another, as part of the uh, political machines that emerged among these workers, these uh, urban uh, Irish, to leverage their position in the society. Like, hey, we are at the very least, we're here, there's numbers of us, and we can be organized to vote a certain way. And they create um, political machines that generate patronage and a way for Irish people to make wages that is preferable to the one thing everybody in America is trying to avoid, wage uh, a wage relationship with a private employer. So they, they, they gave them the guns and they said, here, shoot, shoot the other patties and, and we'll keep you above the blacks. And they said, deal. The Italians show up a little later after the uh, Italy is reorganized uh, and uh, unified as one country so that, and it, so it takes a while once that thing is stitched together for the vast numbers of, uh, uh, for the uh, modernization of agriculture in southern Italy to start throwing people off the land the way it had in northern, uh, northern Europe decades, generations before. The fact that, in, uh, that industrialized, urbanized northern Italy and rural southern Italy were different, completely different uh, political organs until the mid-19th century means that you do not have this, uh, the modernizing impact of, those, of that capital there at a time when you're dealing with you know, uh, much more uh, nationalized economies before you really have the, the world system pulling everybody in one direction. Uh, so the thing that does it first before that is industrialization and urbanization pulling people to cities and then uh, modernizing agriculture and reducing the amount of labor inputs needed to do agriculture. Italy doesn't get that until the mid-19th century. So it's in the late 1800s that you have these huge numbers of uh extra miles in southern Italy who can no longer hang around in the fucking countryside. They come over here, and the cop jobs are gone, so they become cops for uh, criminals. They become the fucking mafia. Which, of course, is fused with the police at a, at a fundamental level. Organized crime and uh, the police are one organ. Are one uh, structure of uh, violent enforcement of the broader economic system in the white market and in the black market, but doing the same job. Uh, what is it that Henry Hill says in Goodfellas? Uh, the mafia is the police department for wise guys. So they are the same guys, and they are welded, welded together uh, in their own way, the same way that the political class is with the uh, capital holders. Bribes. We don't call them that at the political class because they've legalized it. But at the grassroots here, at the level of corruption, 
which is the same exact thing that they're doing legally. It's just it has to be uh, off the menu because it's dealing with a part of the economy that, while necessary for the economy to function, cannot be legally acknowledged by the greater economy and by the legal system. It has to catch the economic activity that is pathological to the to the social system, but generated by that social system nonetheless. Like you have capitalism, you have a bunch of people packed into miserable cities working in factories. They're going to want to do vice. They're going to want to do criminal shit. They're going to have to do criminal shit. So how is that organized to minimize uh, destabilizing social effect of crime? That's what organized crime does. So the Italians show up later and it's like, no, all the cop jobs are taken. Here, you be the cops of the criminals. But even and, and the way you know that that's the same thing is that it had the same uh, effect of upward mobility among the immigrant Italian uh, population that the, uh, the the Irish becoming cops did, because a few generations later, boom, the Italian and the Irish they now are they're all now in the same fucking cities in or the same towns in Long Island. They're all living next to each other, cheek to jowl in Long Island, for example. The Frederici's next to the O'Malley's. And then to fill it out, the people who came last and uh, were left uh, to to their own devices, the Jews. You You got... one three, it's like a third and third and third in in uh, Long Island between the Italians, the Irish, and the Jews. But that ha- that's what happens when you show up late to the party and without any money to, to move, to really move. Once you get to America, you just you settle into the crevices at the at the uh, edge, at the water's edge. The middle is filled with the big fat square Germans. And you can tell that the Polacks show up later because they end up filling the same role uh, in Chicago. And everybody is doing what they're doing to, to make it because the emergence of meaningful class consciousness never really takes off in America during this whole period. It's, it's banked off by uh, the the expansionary project. The same way it was banked off by the colonial project in Europe, but even more effectively because you're integrating these things into the system as opposed to uh, creating this this, uh, perpetual uh, periphery. You are incorporating the periphery. And that means opportunities to live as Americans grow over time. Until they stop, and then we all go insane.
All right, so what I want to talk about today, a little bit, if we can make sense of it, is to follow up on last week when I said that the our Battle of Armageddon already happened, and that we are now living uh, in a permanently fallen world where God has fled, Jesus has been cast into the outer darkness, and Satan rules unchallenged. What does that practically mean? Uh I think it should be seen as liberating, as freeing, and not as something to uh, to repent and gnash your teeth over and feel uh, um, and to feel the fuck's, oh, God damn it, disheartened by to to, to be to be uh, made inert to be paralyzed by it should be. Somebody's mad that we didn't talk about the Jacobites and hell, hell on Earth. We wanted to tie it off at 1688 because that is the year that I think this whole thing is knitted together into a functioning organ of power. Uh, but we will talk about the Jacobites in our bonus episode where we get to some of the stuff that we, we, we missed but wanted to talk about and uh, also answer some questions from listeners, things that they want clarified or they want more information on. So we're still going to do that, and I'll talk about the Jacobites then. But the Jacobites uh, are very interesting. Sore, some, some fucking sore lugers, lugers, losers there. Uh, yeah, we're actually thinking we might do a shorter, maybe three, four episodes, uh, series on the Seven Years' War, uh, because which occurs in the uh, 1760s. 1750s and 60s. Uh, so about about 100 years after we end, or about like 75 years after we end the narrative. Uh, because, well, our the, the Thirty Years' War story sort of ends with England as this new thing, this new state, okay, with this new capacity. Uh, the rest of Europe isn't going to be sort of forced into unleashing their own bourgeois and playing the game by the same rules that the British are until they win the Seven Years' War. That is what gets the uh, that Wallensteinian world system cranking into overdrive, is the British conquering, uh, British being the Brit- British being the winner in the uh, Continental Contest with France uh, for control of the colonial world. Because... You see what the, the losing the Seven Years' War does to France. It causes an almost instantaneous economic crisis that echoes through a few decades and leads to a fucking revolution. But they're, so they're having their, but when France is having their uh, uh, English Civil War moment, right, which is what the set, the French Revolution is, by that point, uh. Victorious Britain has entered the Industrial Revolution. It, the Industrial Revolution really gets kicked into overdrive by the military uh, economy that had been built during the Seven Years' War. Because it is wars that build the capital necessary to make uh, technological advancements. That's what motivates money, capital, to flow to science is the practical application of it 
of its military use. That is the only thing that is, uh, that's the necessity that sharpens the state's uh, uh, interests towards that funding. So this means that France, even with all of its huge advantages, it was the state of Western Europe. Uh, it was the place with the most people, the most rich agriculture, the biggest city. They ended up behind the eight ball. They never really industrialized. Europe, uh, France was still disproportionately uh, agrarian well into the late 19th century. Which, by the way, is why the French, uh, even though they had that revolutionary tradition, were not the uh, place where uh, the socialist movement became effective and, and coordinated. That was Germany. Like we, when, when, uh, when we blame the, the, the social Democrats in Germany... Uh, for not for voting for war credits in 1914, one of the things that one of the things that made them make that decision, yes, they were craven opportunists. Yes, they were they were fat cats. They they wanted to keep their job. That's part of it. But they were making what they thought were rational interest uh, decisions made in the interest of the movement. And one of the re things that made them make that decision is they had no there was no comparable French socialist movement that they could have coordinated a mutual dis, uh, general strike with or something like that. Like there was no partner in France for the German social Democrats to say, Hey, if you and I, if you guys both promise to vote no on war credits and to mobilize our unions to, to uh, resist mobilization, we'll do it together. They didn't have a partner there because France never really uh, industrialized. Because they didn't want to. Because nobody wants to. That's the whole point here. Nobody wanted to do this. Except for a very thin strata of, uh, of motivated, uh, God-touched, uh, incandescent merchant types. The, the, the uh, landowners didn't want to do this. The peasants didn't want to do it. Artisans didn't want to do it. No one wanted to do capitalism. And France, because of their robust uh, democratic traditions, pull back the reins. They don't let what they don't let uh, what they they don't let the the state or the capitalist class do to them what the English allowed their capitalist class to do to them, which is pull them into these giant cities by the by the bushel load, clear the countryside, and turn them into fucking factory workers. On anywhere near the scale. Because uh, English politics had been drained of the language of social justice. It had been, it, the market had been turned into a god. Its dictates had been turned into God's will. And the political zone of action was self-consciously shrunk. But the socialist movement is where Christianity stayed. 
That's the the, the 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 teleological heart of Christianity, right? There's two. Christ Christianity is a teleology. It, it leads towards an apocalypse, which is something that has two conceptions that we imagine of, a good one and a bad one. There is the end of all things as a terrifying, horrifying mass death event. And then there is the end of all things as the uh, return of Christ and the reveal of a new way of being in the world. That's always been uh, uh, two-faced that way. What the scientific revolution, industrial revolution, and the rise of capitalism in the 19th century did in Europe was to split those permanently. Christianity, as we understand, as a as a self-conscious uh, religious movement, becomes eventually a worship of the self and a denial uh, of that reunion that we're talking about, making the end of the world only an annihilation, which we can try to avoid. That's why they end up coalescing around being left behind by the tribulation. Or, I'm sorry, being uh, uh, raptured away from the tribulation of it. No thanks. Check, please. Because what they're actually doing is serving capitalism, which pulls them every day farther from themselves, from each other, uh, denies the possibility of a reunion with humanity or the planet, insists on eternal, eternal separation, And even though you, a lot of these people really thought they, they were Christian, their actions just served this force that just deepened it over the generations to the point that you get to now where nobody in America, I think, really believes in any kind of Christian God. They believe maybe in a supernatural validation of their own best interests. Like, uh, they brought back paganism. But the apocalypse as a uh, unveiling of a new way of being. That did still live after this big moment of crisis, schismogenesis, but it lived among the laboring classes. Because their relationship to the system was fundamentally self-consciously alienated in a way that the small bourgeois who make culture and make religion under the regimes of capital uh, don't feel it. That means they can countenance the end of the system as such. For, for the bourgeois, the end of the system is the end of them. It's the, an annihilation that is, is akin to being cast into the lake of fire because they feel dependent for their position upon this system. And they feel they feel the resentment of those who work for them. One way or the other, however, however they try to deny it, it's felt, it's all, our bodies inscribe all of this fucking stuff. So, the socialist movement becomes the residue of Christianity, and Marx emerges as the prophet of it. 
the person who can take this ambient feeling, give it shape, form, program, uh, scripture. I know this is facile, but you can't have a social movement uh, if it's counter-hegemonic, if it's not depending on the existing structures of um, cons of uh, coercion and consent that hegemonic social structures have, then it needs an alternative truth. It needs an alternative world in symbols that can be read and agreed upon. And that's what Marxism becomes necessarily. Not this is people like fucking Popper and these idiots like to say this is bad or somehow dis. Uh, uh, de-legitimizing. Uh, no, this is unnecessary. There's nothing is uh, nothing works in any other way than this. So does your your precious rationalist capitalism is is fueled by religious texts and a religious understanding of the world. It's just made invisible because that's what capitalism does. That's why it allows. It, that's why people will allow it to make them do things that they would have found abhorrent if they had any regard for their fellow man because they're, it's not their responsibility. That is the free, that is Lucifer in the ear. That is what thou li likes to live deliciously for, for uh, Western uh, Christian capitalists. And so for people like that, uh, anything that is like a self-conscious, uh, self-consciously based on a faith in something is anathema. But their faith is, is just, it's a dark faith. It's like, it's dark matter. It cannot be read by the person who's been idealized to it, who's, who's been uh, fully propagandized to it. And so when the great moment came, the, the, the real uh, Armageddon trumpet was blown in 1914, which is when the thing starts. When Because when, World War I is not just this battle between these uh, European empires who are competing over uh, 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 resources and markets. It is, it is systems trying to survive the eruption of social crisis at their heart that happens when you get X number of people with Y amount of technology, meaning that regular people are able to create their own parallel structures to demand power and to exercise it that had traditionally been monopolized by the ruling class. That has to be dealt with. And it's that that contradiction that fuels everything else and leads to World War I. And it's the great triumph of the capitalists that they get to fight World War I on the, in the context of national uh, uh, dispute and the national question. Which is, of course, going to happen. It's inevitable to happen because the bourgeois got rid of God and they replaced it with the nation which is just, of course, them. Because the whole thing about Christianity is that it is universal, which necessarily reduces you, 
the the individual is contextually downgraded thanks to that universality. When the bourgeois uh, triumph, their lang- their, uh, they have to still use the language of meaning in their culture. Everyone, everything has to have meaning. So where does meaning come from? It comes from this mystical concept of the nation, which now has made me special again. I'm not just one person among God's children. I'm not just one child of God. I am part of the special elect children of God, which is, of course, exactly what the Jews did in ancient Mesopotamia to survive in their contest with the other tribes. By the time that the real crisis hits in the early early 19th century, the working class has only barely come into political uh, action and cultural formation in most of these countries. But they have had, by this point, 100 years in many cases to build these notions of uh, nationalism. And who started this? The French. French Revolution happens. The working class doesn't really exist yet. You have these, these sans-culottes these, these uh, unemployed artisans who are able to mobilize effectively as a military force, essentially in the capital, uh, but who, uh, whose relationship to uh, production is nothing like what you see later on with a developed cap, uh, working class. So they can't take power. So that means that it is sort of taken by these uh, this group of lawyers uh, and merchants. So what do they consecrate? They consecrate the nation. And it's incredibly powerful. They take over the entire continent up behind that shit because it is a force multiplier. It is a new technology. You can't understand French military dominance during the Napoleonic era without understanding nationalism as a technological innovation among the other innovations that built modern military forces. And much of modern European nationalism is a response to that. People getting their asses kicked by the French and going, hey, we need some of that. We need some of that nation stuff. That is what kickstarts modern German nationalism. It's this contest, conflict, the, the, the being dominated by an other. Because there is no horizon. The horizon has been abolished. Because it is what has been totalized is not the concept of a working class in itself, by itself, for all. But instead, a every man for themselves. And the market as the place to... Uh, battle for supremacy. And so we have this 30-year spasm of violence from 1914 to 1945 that sees Europe destroyed twice. It sees the entire uh, world become a battlefield. That sees the incorporation of China and Japan into this global competitive state framework.
but it is only fitfully and occasionally fought uh, by self-conscious class elements. Most famously, of course, the French, the Russian Revolution, the place where capitalism had developed the least during this period, where the crisis of the of the World War One uh, uh, broke the state and left the only force capable of wielding power, one that was fired by belief in something. Nobody else believed in anything. Even the right-wingers couldn't really believe in the nation anymore. The nation kept getting its ass kicked. So a combination of workers whose experience of alienation had forged them into the revolutionary weapon that Marx predicted and a leadership made up of the children of the disaffected children of the other classes with the leisure uh, to devote themselves to revolution as a vocation. Now, there was a, there was a Russian nationalism. I mean, they were an empire, uh, and they also had been fighting the Ottomans for about uh, 200 years by that point. So there was, a, a, but there was a nationalism, but it was protean, and it was very much geared around the royal family which made their failure in the war disqualifying. And why were they willing to, why were they able to act in that moment? We've talked about this too. Why were the Bolsheviks, Lenin specifically, able to act in 1917 while everyone else was standing around with their thumbs up their ass, waiting for somebody to do something, while the entire thing just fell apart? Because they believed in a, they believed in a apocalyptic horizon. They believed that their victory in Russia would spark a world revolution that would define the rest of human history. They might all die fighting in it, but they would die for something. And you know what? If they'd been right, you still would have had 30 years of war from 1914 to 1945, at least. And as many dead, probably, maybe more. But at the end of it, you would have had a human race capable of living as humans again, as capable of imagining collectively a project of building that world that Christ spoke of. In other words, a victorious godly army after Armageddon. The fun part of Revelation, after all the nastiness has been concluded. The thousand years of peace on earth. Even if it's hard, even if it's struggle, even if it's not paradise, the struggle and the pain means something. Because it is a movement towards wholeness and, and, and uh, reunion. That is the, that's the horizon that the Bolsheviks were, were pointing towards that every element of the, lab, of, the, of, the, of the socialist movement during this period was pushing towards. But the tide rolled back because the antibodies that capitalism builds, the cultural antibodies that builds through technology, through mass technology, labor-saving convenience devices and media, Change the fucking 
radically change the calculus of a country, the calculus of its citizens, the 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 decision making matrix of a person in a in a uh, position of power. What do I do in X situation? Yeah, I think if Lenin had not died, he and Bukharin would have tried to force them to just capitalize the country by uh, by making a deal with the peasantry. Because they were fundamentally incapable of, of, uh, of undertaking a project of dispossession. Like Lenin, of course, was happy to kill people during the, the Civil War. You saw he would write these frantic letters like, we got to kill him, we got to kill him. Because he thought those deaths meant something. And it's in the after, it's when the war ends that, uh, that this torpor sits in, this fear of like, oh God, what are we going to do? How are we going to square this? And Lenin's brain just killed itself. Instead of dealing with this contradiction, Lenin's brain exploded so that he wouldn't have to deal with it. And then Trotsky just stood there like a fucking gomer and waited for somebody to get him out of the out of there. Uh, and Bukharin, of course, got the neutralized and eventually executed. And the only one who was willing to do what Lenin shrunk from from was the fucking the Georgian thug, the the the, the underworld guy, the sociopath. What was it about Maoism that got the peasants on board versus Leninism? Because it was not a uh, traditional Marxist movement. It was not made up of working class people, which was the bulk of the Bolshevik uh, support in St. Petersburg that sort of pushed the thing off, them and the soldiers and sailors. They had the working class in these cities. The Chinese Communist Party tried to organize the working class in the cities, but the nationalists at every turn fucked their shit up. And eventually, there was a huge massacre of the Communist Party and their cadres uh, in Shanghai. That's basically the end of the, the project of trying to create an orthodox Marxist movement in China. Mao and those guys looked around and saw that this mass of dispossessed Hakka peasantry in southern China, these people who were generationally rural proletarians, who had had no land because they were the descendants of emigrants from northern China, they had been working generationally as laborers in the countryside. They could be organized and were organized. And they made up the, the center of the art. They were the heart of the army that ended up overthrowing uh, the nationalists. Whereas the, uh, the rural peasants in Russia were inert at that point. And this is down to time frame. By the time the Chinese uh, show up in uh, the Chinese, uh, or I'm sorry, um, and that's not really the case in rural Russia. There, there were landless workers in rural Russia, but 
communal ownership of land by peasants still existed in large amounts throughout Russia. And small holding was the norm. But even then, at the early stages of the war, of the revolution, the peasants were by and large pro-Bolshevik. Even though they were they voted SR when they did, they supported the revolution, they supported expropriating landlords. Because the, the, the land policy of the Bolsheviks was the land policy of the social revolutionaries at first. But that was basically a scam. But it, why, but it wasn't a scam? Because guys, because Lenin, they didn't really believe in just giving the, the fucking farmers their, their land. They knew that that would not allow for the development that it needed to happen in Russia. But they assumed, again, that world revolution would make this hall irrelevant. And German agricultural help would allow for them to modernize agriculture in the countryside with minimal conflict with the peasantry. But of course, that doesn't happen. What do we do now? And so by the time the second big re reckoning happens in 1941, 19, uh, uh, the late 30s, World War II, capitalism divided against itself temporally and geographically between the, those who got there early the Allies, and those who got there late, Germany, Italy, Japan. Germany and Italy's uh, case, it's because they were not brought together as sovereign entities until much later than the other countries of Western Europe. And for uh, Japan, because they were uh, closed up to uh, the West until they were, their gates were blown open by Matthew Perry, and they had to industrialized basically overnight. They did an amazing job of it, but they were still showing up late to the party. And that meant that the path that the allies had taken to stabilize their uh, economic systems in their growing pains, colonialism uh, was no longer possible for them because all the stuff was spoken for. All the land was spoken for. And they reacted the way that a capitalist state will with its borders fully constrained. It will eat itself and then lash out in a death spasm. And the only government anywhere that stood for the working class as such and therefore a Christian apocalyptic horizon was Russia, this country that had just uh, massacred millions to build an industrial economy, did what the capitalist states had done. Again, they had to do it to survive as a state. But socialism in one country was the first revision. You want to talk about revisionism, socialism in one country is a big-ass fucking revision. But they thought they had to do it. Why? Because they could not imagine them being in charge. And that is what constrains all human social movements, is that they're made up of humans. Eventually, though, the collective effort draws us towards one another. Unless we fossilize into 
regimes of exploitation. Which, I'm sorry, the Soviet economy was. Workers did not have control over their workplaces. They did not have control over their amount of labor performed. Capitalists did not take the labor. It was not a capitalist economy. They did socialize that surplus towards building a state with a project. Extend global world revolution. Like I said, if you're an American in the 30s, being a communist makes sense. Not believing what they say about the fucking show trials makes sense. Like this is this is if you want a horizon, if you want to believe that we can actually change the world and change what it means to live amongst each other, then you've got to be with the Soviet Union. It's all that we had. But it was due to failures, not success. And as a result, when that war ended. The wild dogs of capitalism had been euthanized. But the uh, but the worker state of the Soviet Union had suffered such massive damage that it was forced to uh, concede to the capitalist West a a uh, the ability to create a global economic trade network and, and world system that, that the Soviets would participate in as subject. And in the process of fighting this war, all these huge technological innovations emerge. Again, we get the technolo- we get the first industrial revolution because of the seven years war. We get the explosion of technology in the last uh, 50, 70, 80 years and the technological revolution from World War I or from World War II. And the technological regime supported by the atomic bomb, the er uh, technological innovation, the one that everything else flows out of one way or the other, and that secures the victory of capitalism and the reign of Satan over us all. Uh, and it's disproportionate holding in the hands of the West. That is what dooms uh, uh, the socialist movement from that point. Because capitalism then is able to defeat the national populations of all of these subject people in underdeveloped colonial countries, piece by piece, one by one. Capitalism knocks on the door, says, sorry about all that colonialism, that's awful. Uh, but you guys, and you guys get to create your own economies. Good, go for it. We're very proud of you. You, Welcome to the family of nations. But here's the debt that you owe. Here's the cost of these things. 
what can you pay for them with? Oh, your raw resources? Off. Oh, that's funny. Well, we'll certainly take those off your hands. But that means that you have to essentially replicate the colonial economy that your former overlords had imposed. Only now you're replacing colonial administrators with your own government's bureaucrats and turning the comprador class into a national bourgeois. And there is class conflict, but it is all, it's separated. It's, 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 it's isolated. It's, it's all these uh, people struggling together, but without access to those tools that had been developed in the initial struggles in Europe. They were all being hoarded by the capitalists. And the, 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 uh, the socialist bloc was behind the eight ball the whole time and always, always at a massive disadvantage. I mean, uh, Russian GDP exploded in the 50s, but that's because they had to build up from such a low level after the devastations of World War II. That is a lot of that, like, miraculous economic activity of the 50s is just rebuilding uh, destroyed infrastructure and capital uh, formations that the U.S. was just building on top of. Because that means it's just a matter of time until the... Uh, West calls in the uh, debts. And that's what starts happening in the 70s. And because no communist country is going to launch the nuke, because that would be to annihilate every reason for being they've ever had, the thing that goes beneath consciousness of even the most cynical operators, nobody can fucking launch the nukes. So they step down. And we now live in the aftermath of that. But as I said, what this should free us of is our enslavement to a teleology of the idea that our efforts as humans on Earth don't mean anything unless they build a story of Western individual humanity. Not humanity as, as, as a species, but humanity as a specific sort of subject formed by specific regimes of accumulation over time. In our case, the Roman world that Christ emerged during. Our actions have meaning no matter what happens in the future. Because we are carrying them out. We're, we believe in something every minute of our lives. It's just a question of what that thing is. And, and the, the reason that there's so much endemic social pathology, uh, sadness, uh, misery, uh, uh, self-destructive behavior is because the only thing we believe in the only thing that we can all agree to believe in, the only belief that is rewarded in the marketplace and resonated outward is ourselves. 
But if we believed in other people, then every moment can be clarified and and action, meaningful action can be taken, which makes all those other bigger questions irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have a fucking carrot at the end of a stick. Like, I believe, yeah, the Western individual subject is not long for this world. But that does not mean that life, that that conscious life even, is going to be extinguished. I don't think that's possible. I think consciousness is, is, is uh, the definition of existence. That you can't, that it does not exist outside of consciousness. So there is a future that we're all part of, even now, and we're building without knowing it. But the thing we're building is not something we can imagine. This is what I mean by we're we're in an we're living in the post-apocalypse. The apocalyptic uh, horizon I'm talking about is one where the world as we understand it and humans as we understand them can live together. And face each other as friends and as brothers and sisters and live that way. That is, that's the apocalyptic horizon. And that's what gives our political actions, or should give our political actions, meaning did anyway. Uh, what I'm saying is, that's gone. But that does not mean anything, because what comes after will be as much us... Uh, as as what our narrow conceptions of uh, identity would have us believe. And when that happens, this period, this, I, this, con, uh, per, this subjectivity that we cling to, I know I do, that we cling to so terrifiedly will look like the transitional fossil that it always was. And that's fine. We're all part of the story. Now, how does does that mean like, oh, the world's going to end? Oh, absolutely not. Like, we're not going to get uh, that total annihilation that is at the end of the uh, capitalist Christian teleology, the death drive, if you will. That's that's not something they're afraid of. It's something they're seeking. And like anything, you don't get what you want. What what, what the what the what the cat the final cat, catastrophic destruction fantasy is is of a collective something, a final reunion. They can it cannot be conceived of as a conscious uh, uh, restitution and uh, healing because being separated and wounded is how we now define being a person, but. If we all die at once, or, or if all of our structures collapse at once, there is at least finally a collective uh, experience that we can be part of, which we're longing for even though we deny it. Yes, union through nuke. 
we're all we'll all go together when we go. The classic Tom uh, Lair song. Or the bomb that if the bomb that drops on you takes your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left around to grieve. So that's how we're going to get. Everyone's still going to die alone uh, in somewhere on an on a economic totem pole that leaves them feeling at the end of their lives uh, defeated, including the, the luckiest and most powerful and most uh, successful, the ones in the cocoon. But yeah, all that's going to happen is that apocalyptic conditions that currently exist on Earth that would, to people who worry about the end of the world, would absolutely be processed by those people as the apocalypse. If they happened everywhere simultaneously, they'd be like, oh yeah, this is the end of the world. They will just slowly increase the territory that they occupy, and the, uh, the elite and their hangers-on will retreat to uh, to citadels, an archipelago of wealth. Talked about this before, and just slowly shrink over time, and that means that nobody ever gets an apocalypse. Nobody ever gets the ecstatic reunion of catastrophe. Unless somebody does press the nuke to make it happen. If somebody is able to take that world historical weight on their shoulders to be, I'm going to be the one at the end of this story who pressed the button. I'm going to be the beast. I, I'm going to actually become Antichrist. Uh, and maybe that happens. I mean, but again, I don't know. But the lives that, the lives that are lived while this is happening subjectively and individually, uh, still can be made meaningful. And deaths can have meaning. And all that meaning will come around somewhere in some form because nothing goes away. And that's the thing, like, will the U.S. use nukes rather than lose hegemony? And that is a very, very open question. Uh, I would say at some point, it probably will happen. But I have no idea. But that's not the end either. That's only likely the end of one form of subjectivity, one way to be a conscious being. And there are many other ways. There are infinite ways to be be a human, to to have to, to have a collective understanding of what that is. And there exists one that is able to harmonize, that is able to utilize technology towards human ends. I know, like Jacques Yulieu and those guys say, "Nope, can't do it. Technology always takes over." But I, I look at history, and there's so much contingency there that. I really think that 
enough enough tosses of the dice bring up uh, possibilities that we could not uh, conceive of because the people dealing with those situations and dealing with that technology and building that technology are doing it from a completely different uh, subjective perspective. Crab people, why not? I do think that there actually could be a human, a, fu a human, a future for this brand of humanity, this run, this factory run of humanity, if uh, there could be a negotiated step down of American hegemony. Although part of me thinks you're just delaying the inevitable there, but that does seem sort of. Uh, Beside the point, because it's very difficult to see the American state uh, stepping down that way. All the incentives push the other direction. And as I've said before, you can just witness that in the fact that you've got this chasmous, massive culture war with these hugely polarized uh, political structures and, and uh, uh, political parties that uh, represent like these Manichaean mirror images of each other to their middle-class voters. But they're both on the same page on the, on the long-term, the most important question, how do we relate to China? They have this, they have, there's basically no uh, real gap there. I know that Republicans love to say, oh, the, 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 the Democrats love China, they want to kiss China. Look at what they fucking do in power. What was Obama's big... Uh, foreign policy push. For, uh, Obama did do some stuff to stand down U.S. military commitments in the Middle East. He he bitched out in Afghanistan, and he uh, let Hillary uh, he let Hillary uh, lure him into Libya. But he did refuse to go into Syria, even though they wanted him to. And he did hold to the withdrawal from Iraq. And why did he do that stuff? So that he could make an Asian fucking pivot which meant confront and contain China diplomatically, uh, economically, and militarily. Oh, uh, Biden right now is trying to de-link American technological uh, economy from China's. That's what they're actually doing. Forget about what they say. Oh, they don't say China virus enough. Like This is for children. They're blaming Russia now, but Russia, in the long term, can't really be your boogeyman. One, because their culture war, the culture war coding doesn't work for half the country. They look like uh, based white people. And also because they're just not really a threat on their own. And the, and the, uh, the right-wing resistance to the Ukraine war is, they, they say this publicly. The anti-war voices who say stop fighting Russia do so because they think no, we need to su to uh, we need to link up with base Putin to confront China.
So someone needs to take our fucking nukes before if they if they're really serious about about uh, about taking the car keys from us. They also need to prevent us from just trying to uh, bluff our way into holding permanent domination. Because, like, I think at this point, looking back on it, the invasion of Iraq was an attempt by a uh, a radical segment of the greater American uh, ruling class to prevent the long-term uh, migration uh, away from the United States of the organs of uh, world capitalism. Because that's the thing. Uh, capitalism passes through these like national hosts as it as it colonizes the globe. But once you get fully uh, fully nationalized capitalism, then it shouldn't really have a single national headquarters anymore. And that is the natural progression, which by the turn of the century, m many people in D.C. were very well aware of. And you had this faction of those people who thought as a tactical matter, the U.S. should attempt to use its massive military to stop that from happening by trying to reassert a formal colonial relationship to the most important energy sec energy uh, pools in the world. I am very excited for the Oppenheimer movie. It's interesting because, like, Nolan seems like he is a full reptile. Like, he is an Anglo's Anglo. All, all human emotion has been drained from him. Although he does, like, also, though, understand, like, love as this, you know, universal bonding thing. But he, I think he kind of, his films have that reptilian feeling because he understands, like, what Angloism means. So it'll be interesting to see how he takes... Uh, that moment, which really is the uh, the hinge point. So I, I want to see it. I'm going to see it on IMAX, baby. Yes. Let me see that nuke. Let me see the Satan's eye open up. I mean, the fact that it happened at the fucking Trinity site. Get out of here. Get out of here. Too much symbolism. It's killing me here. Because, yeah, it's an atomic Lucifer that takes over the whole world. So yeah, it doesn't seem... Now, though, so that failed. War on Terror failed in its effort. It actually only uh, exacerbated America's hegemonic decline by creating this just a, a whole bucket with a hole in the bottom that didn't do anything except enrich defense contractors, which, hey, that's part of it, but that's not supposed to be the whole thing. It's supposed to also uh, convert American military power into economic power, which it has not done. The way they wanted it to. They, their reach exceeded their grasp. 
That's why it had to be a a a segment within the uh, uh, political, economic, and, and, and uh, military types to do it. And I think it's no coincidence that they're ex-Trotskyites because they still had that uh, apocalyptic, it had been inverted and twisted at this point, but they were true believers in now an American apocalypse. And they, because of uh, 9-11, however that happened, <laughs> and I am, at this point, uh, I would say I am agnostic entirely on 9-11. I don't know. I know that whatever they put in the fucking, uh, in the report is not true. 9-11 commission report obviously is fiction. Same way the Warren report is, but past that, I have no idea. But that context uh, created this attempt to extend American hegemony by saying, okay, we're going to actually stop doing capitalism. It was great. Thank you. We appreciated it. But now we're going to just do American Imperium. Thank you very much. Now we got China, who's over here actually trying to do capitalism. But they're doing it when they had used capitalism to build legitimacy in their institutions, as opposed to us, who had seen it hollow ours out. So we'll see. We still have all those nukes. And Russia does too. And Russia doesn't want to get dismembered and destroyed, which is clearly the only answer that NATO and the U.S. are going to take. It all feels very uh, tenuous. But it always is. And we still live lives that... Uh, that means something even if we can't see it and that we can take a good faith effort to try to find it it gets reflected somewhere i do think that and even if it's not true what difference does it make cuz you're still here might as well try <sighs> all right Think that's good. Uh, next week, if we're still here, uh, uh, I had a thing, but I forgot it. I'll remember. Bye bye.